Our scripture text this morning is Luke 9, verses 43 through 50. That's Luke 9, verses 43 through 50. This is God's word. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, among you all, is the one who is great. This is God's word. Um, so the reason we had the Hones share that update is that uh, next Sunday, which is a members meeting, so 10 a.m. in the fellowship hall, if you are a member, please make a priority to be there. Uh, there will be a Zoom option as well. But we are going to be voting on, we've already heard from the Bledsoe's, if you remember, they're a missionary couple in Kenya, Africa. We heard from them maybe a month ago. We'll be voting on making them official missionaries, but we're also going to be voting on the Hones to make them official Vine Street Baptist Church missionaries. Now, the Hones are not with the IMB, so initially, it will not be a financial partnership, but the thought is, is that as we are able, we will become financial partners with them as well. Um, so please then come uh, to our members' meetings so we can vote on making them part of uh, our official Vine Street uh, missionary. With that, let me open us with a word of prayer. Father, we are your people whom you've called out of darkness and you've washed us with the blood of your son, and you've made us your own. And we have, we have one desire here this morning, and that is to hear from you so that we may worship you, so we may offer our life up before you as a pleasing sacrifice. But please meet us, God. If you don't meet us, we are without hope. Meet us through the preaching of your word, Jesus. Meet us, blessed Savior. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. We're going to start with a thought experiment. So I need you to get your imagination ready. If you're not an imaginative person, I'm sorry, just do your best. Here we go. I want you to imagine, picture in your mind, who you think are three of the greatest individuals alive today. It doesn't have to be the three. Just think of three great individuals whom you would consider great. Picture them in your mind. I'll give you a second to think through that three of the greatest individuals alive today. Quick poll by show of hands. Anyone have like a politician or government leader in that group? Okay. Any, um, let me think, any like musicians or artists? No. Okay, cool. Uh, how about any uh, educators? Teachers, professors, okay. Um, pastors? Okay. Uh, and then family members. Yeah, okay, cool, all right. 
Well, here's the the thought experiment. Okay, so imagine Greg Fisher, if you don't know who he is, he's the mayor of our city, kind of a big deal. He calls you up on the phone, and it's him. It's not an assistant, it's Mayor Fisher himself. And he says, congratulations, you have been nominated and voted the citizen of the year for Louisville City. We just appreciate whatever you've done for the city. We want to throw a gala in your honor. It's a, a very fancy party. And those three people that you thought of in your mind, they're all giving speeches in honor of who you are. They will be present. And there's going to be a fourth speaker who's a surprise, the greatest of them all, but you'll find out who that is at the gala. So you go to the gala, and this is like a black tie event. There's a live band playing jazz music in the side. Like anybody who's anybody is at this gala in your honor. Community leaders, political leaders, religious leaders, like the cheese of the high-class society in Louisville, who I don't even know who's there because I'm not, in that, I'm not in that circle. Whoever they are, they're there, and you can tell. And this is quite a party. The three people in your mind who are the greatest people, they up and give these speeches in honor of you. This is an amazing moment. You get to hear from them. And then they're done, and Mayor Fisher stands up, and he says, okay, I'm going to introduce our special keynote speaker, the greatest of them all. He says, I, I haven't known this individual long, but they've made an impact on me. And we're just, we're privileged to have them here. And he invites the speaker on, and it's a random 10-year-old. The mayor Fisher picked up at soccer practice. He's still wearing his soccer sweats. He comes out, and he, uh, and he reads a poem that he wrote. And this isn't like a future T.S. Eliot, right, or Robert Frost. Like, this is a pretty ordinary fourth-grade-level poem. <laughs> reads his poem, sits down. What are you thinking in your mind at that moment? One thought may be, oh my word, this is a joke. That's like a nightmare situation. Like this whole thing I thought was honoring me and they're all making fun of me. That might be one thing. But then when you realize like Mayor Fisher's being serious, like no, this, this was incredible. This is great. You're going to start to think he's lost his mind and everyone else in that gala. That's what Jesus does for us in this story this morning. So he does to his disciples. But the difference between our story in the Bible and if Mayor Fisher called me is that the disciples knew Jesus and they trusted him. They knew he was not insane, he was not mentally unbalanced, and they trusted his words, that he would teach things that are wise and true and good and beautiful. And so the effect of that is it begins to make them question some of their basic assumptions about what it means to be truly great. And what we'll find out from this morning is that ultimately greatness, true greatness, is actually closeness to Jesus. So just to recap before we get into our our passage, um, the disciples have recently correctly identified who is Jesus. They say, Jesus, you are the Christ of God. You are the anointed Messiah. True. It is a true identification. But what's clear is that they don't really understand what that means. They don't really understand who the Messiah was supposed to be. And we're going to see three mistakes between here and chapter 10 that the disciples make. And the point of these mistakes is to illustrate that though they correctly know that Jesus is the Son of God, the the Christ, there's still a lot they have to learn before Jesus can leave, before they can lead the church. And so from their mistakes, also we get to see a profound teaching on what true greatness is. To give you the outline for this morning, first point is going to be true greatness is not a matter of raw power. Second, true greatness is not a matter of comparison. And third and lastly, true greatness is not a zero-sum game. Let's go ahead and look at verses 43 to 45. 
But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the saying. We're getting a sharp contrast here. If you remember what happened in the story from last week, Jesus has cast out a demon that is literally destroying this little boy. The disciples couldn't do it. The disciples who themselves probably had some, you know, fame as, as, as ones who were with Jesus. They were not able to cast out this demon. The father was unable. And then Jesus, without any kind of struggle, of course, overcomes this demonic force and ends with it. Everyone's just astonished at the majesty of God. And while people are kind of just oozing their, like, you know, adulation of Jesus and, and, and they're marveling at his power, Jesus says, look, disciples, let this, let this, Get into your head. The Son of Man who does all these marvels is going to be delivered up. And it's a sharp contrast. He pivots away from marveling at his power. And we're not really troubled by this because we know how the story goes. We know Jesus came to die on a cross, and we know that that's not the final story, but he raises from the grave. But we've got to put ourselves in the disciples' shoes. This would have been a big deal. The one who they think is the Christ, who they know is the Christ, is saying he's going to be delivered up and killed. It, uh, it, it's kind of like this. When I was like seven or eight, I used to get in arguments with my guy friends about whose dad could beat up who. And I asked Mariko, and she confirmed that she did not have arguments like that with her friends. So I don't know if this is a guy-girl thing or a Mike-Mariko thing, but, you know, it's just like you're seven, like, yeah, my dad could totally beat up your dad. And the great thing about being a dad is for a certain time period, you are a giant among men for your kids. Like my dad... Um, is not a large man, has never been a large man. But yeah, when I'm seven, I'm pretty sure my dad, five foot seven, 145 pounds, could totally take your dad, who's six foot four and 250, professional bodybuilder. But imagine when I was seven, and that's, like, that's good, that's good that you know, our sons look up to like, us like that. But imagine I'm seven, I, I'm, I'm telling my dad this, my dad just says, Mike, he would clobber me. Like I would have no chance. You would lose your father. If he had told me that as a seven-year-old, like, my life would have been unhinged. I would have been unmoored from my foundations. Like, my dad, like, dad, like, you can kick a soccer ball over a tree like you. But like kids, the disciples need to learn that true greatness is not just a matter of raw power. And in fact, with, you know, eventually you realize your dad is not larger than life, but he's a normal guy like you. And when you grow older, you also realize that there is far more to greatness than just whether or not your dad can beat up someone else. And that's what the disciples are having to realize as well. And here's the rub. The disciples just, they can't picture how Christ, the Messiah, the anointed of God, how he could be delivered up, how he could be in weakness, how he could die. I mean, seeming to lose. How is that possible? Like, you were the one to come to deliver God's people. You're the anointed of God. I've seen the Old Testament prophecies. Like, you are one of power and might, the Son of Man, who descends with the glory of God. Like, how is it possible that you're going to die? It doesn't seem possible. They can't fathom this. But what they don't realize is that Jesus, in weakness and sacrifice, would accomplish far more with his death than all of his miracles up to that point combined. Far more. That, that act of weakness and, and seeming to lose, dying on the cross, being delivered over, that accomplished 
far more than all of his healings, his casting out demons, his you know, multiplying bread, all the impressive, powerful things he did. They don't, they don't come close to what he did when he died on a cross and he broke the power of sin. For everyone who has faith in Christ, he broke the power of the grave. The disciples didn't realize this yet. But true greatness is not a matter of raw power. And we'll see um, what true greatness is in a minute. Jesus shows his disciples, look, true greatness is not just a matter of raw, brute strength. Now, a quick application before we move on, and we just have to recognize some of the stories that what this shows us is popularity is really fickle. The crowd here is just, again, they're just oozing adulation of Jesus. Can't say enough good things about him, and in 10 chapters, they're going to be crying for his blood. And we talk a lot to like middle schoolers and high schoolers about peer pressure, right? Because when you're in middle school, you don't know who you are. You want to fit in. That, and so the temptation to, to do things that are stupid because you want your friends to think much of you is strong. But I think we're fooling ourselves if we think that that goes away as adults. And that's one of the reasons I think we struggle to be bold in our witness for Christ. Because we recognize that part of the gospel is offensive. And telling someone you are a sinner and you need to repent or you're going to hell, is not exactly small talk. We don't want to be the weirdos on the block. Popular opinion is fickle. It's fickle. Jesus' life illustrates what he tells us in John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Opinions come and go. Let's decide to follow Jesus in his footsteps, no matter where that might lead. But again, true greatness is not a matter of raw power. Second, true greatness is not a matter of comparison. Let's look at verses 46 to 48. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Luke puts 46 right after 45. He wants to draw the contrast between Jesus' uh, proclamation that he's going to be delivered, he's going to be humiliated, and then the disciples' argument about who's greater. In, real, in, in reality, there is some time between them and Mark, we find out that you know, after Jesus tells them he's going to be betrayed, he then travels, and it's as they're traveling, his disciples are having this argument, and then when they arrive at their house, that's when Jesus confronts them. But the point remains, there's, there's, there's meant to be a contrast. Again, the disciples have a lot to learn before they're ready to lead the church as Jesus ascends to heaven. And the thing is, you know, we read that they're having this argument, and we tend to think of arguments as like shouting matches. Like, you know, if a husband or wife says, oh, we had an argument last night. Like, this was not a reasoned debate. This was like, you broke the dishwasher. No, you broke the dishwasher. And that's what we think of arguments. But that's not what this text is saying. What this text is saying is they're literally having a reasoned debate about who's greater. It's like, I am better than you. Here's my three reasons. Oh, no, 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 no. Reason two doesn't make sense. I'm going to tell you my two reasons why I am greater than you. It's like if it just had been a shouting match, it would have been a little bit more a little better. Like, I just lost my head. I don't know what I was saying. But like, no, this is like the fruit of like previous thought. And, you know, they're, they're presenting arguments. 
This is the state of the hearts of the disciples. And we just have to remember that Jesus doesn't call saints. He calls sinners, like the disciples. And then he makes them saints through his grace and his power. And he takes these 12 men who are drunk on their own personal ambitions, and they're like jockeying for who's going to be better, and he makes them into servant leaders who will one day lead the church. That's what Jesus does. That's his business. He takes, saint, he takes sinners and he makes them into saints. But in the midst of this argument, this is not something Jesus can just pass over. He has to address this. And he has two responses to the argument of the disciples. And the first response is he defines what true greatness is. He says true greatness is actually closeness to Jesus. Now the reasoning here is indirect. So we've got to parse this out. Because Jesus is a little bit indirect in how he gets to this. But again, true greatness is closeness to Jesus. Let's look at verses 47 and 48, where he responds to their argument about who is greater. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, he took a child and he put him by his side. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. He takes a child. The point of taking a child is, 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 is children are too young to be great. Right? Like children are are wonderful, they're gifts from the Lord, they're precious, they're made in God's image, but no one's asking an eight-year-old to write their memoirs. You haven't been alive long enough to do something you'd consider great. And so, he ta- so in the midst of this like, debate over just like worldly understandings of greatness, he takes someone who, ha- who cannot, by definition of their age, be great. He says, you want to be great? Receive this child. And why is that great? Because if you receive this child, you're receiving me. You're welcoming. If you care about this child, you're welcoming me. And if you welcome me, you're welcoming God himself. And there's no one greater than God. In the midst of this argument, I'm greater than you, I'm greater than you, I'm greater. Jesus saying, no, no, no. True greatness is being close to me, is receiving me, is caring about what I care about being burdened with what Jesus is burdened with. That's what true greatness is, is being close to Jesus. If this is true, there's some pretty big implications. If greatness is not about intelligence, it's not about stature, it's not about degrees, but it's about how how close you are to Jesus how closely you walk in his footsteps, that has pretty huge implications. And I think one thing we can agree, or if this is the measure of true greatness, we have to to say there's something very, very sick with contemporary evangelicalism, with the broader evangelical world. If you look at the top five evangelical book authors, um, even ones within our camp, like let's just put Joel Osteen, we'll, we'll put him off the table. He's not, whatever he is, he's not evangelical, right? Let's just take ones in our camp. You took the top five authors. Why are they selling books? Is it because they're godly and they follow Jesus? They may be, absolutely. But that's not why they're selling books. It's because they've built a big platform. They've built a big ministry. That's why we want to hear them. And we're seeing consequences of after leader after leader implodes in his ministry. 
I'm, I'm coming to the point, you know, I've, I've been to T4G multiple times, been really helpful. I've been to the Gospel Coalition Conference, really helpful. I'm getting to the point where I'm like, I'm just not sure. They may be more harmful than, than hurtful. Because again, even the T4G conference, I'm assuming most of those men are very godly Christian men, but it's reinforcing this mindset because again, why are they invited? Not because they walk closely with Jesus. The differentiating part that gets them an invitation is that they're known. They pastor large churches. They've written a lot of books. We all know who Mark Dever is and Thabiti and Kevin DeYoung and that's why they're invited and it's reinforcing this idea greatness is not closeness to Jesus. Greatness is selling a lot of books or, or pastoring a big church or starting ministries or just being a household name. There's something sick, sick in evangelicalism even within like the good groups that would agree with us. True greatness is closeness to Jesus. Let's not be impressed with church size, entrepreneurial giftings, how many books you've written, what your degrees are. It should instead be, look, show me that you're close to Jesus. Show that to me. And then I'll listen to what you have to say. But when you look a little bit closer at our own church, okay, what are the implications for our own church? If true greatness is closeness to Jesus, what does it mean for Vine Street Baptist Church to be great? Does it mean that we look like we did in the 50s when church was booming? We just try to recreate that. Is that greatness? Is greatness like flawless doctrine and church, church practice? Like if we have perfect doctrine, perfect church practice, we will be a great church. Is it just growing numerically? Like if we're just bigger next year than we are this year, is that greatness? No, not fundamentally. Fundamentally, greatness was the church. Are we growing closer to Jesus? As a church body, are we wanting more what he, what he wants? Are we desiring his presence more? Are we sharing one another's burdens? Jesus says, you will, they will know you are my disciples by your love. Are we loving one another? That has an individual component, absolutely. Like, we cannot be following Jesus together if we're not following Jesus individually. But this is, I'm talking about together as a church body. Are we moving closer to Jesus or are we moving further away? That's what greatness is for us as a church. And I'll tell you what, this is just as a caveat, if you're not relationally invested in our church, then you really can't even be part of this equation. This is why small groups are so important. There's nothing sacred or sanct about small groups or men's and women's groups. Nothing in the Bible says you have to be in them. But the point is they provide intentional ways to be relationally connected so that you can be part of the body. Otherwise, we can never grow towards greatness together. And that's what the church is. So response number one Jesus gives is he defines true greatness. True greatness is not all the things you guys think it is. It's being close to Jesus. But the second response is that greatness, okay, so because greatness is a matter of closeness to Jesus, therefore, greatness is not a matter of comparison. That's the disciples' entire argument is they're comparing themselves. Who's better than the other person? It's all a measure of me against someone else. But if greatness is about me being close to Jesus, then comparison is completely irrelevant. It doesn't matter whether I'm closer or you're closer or I'm further or you're further. That doesn't matter. What's great is whether we're close to Jesus or not, not how I compare to other people. And that's why Jesus says in, in, in the second half of verse 48, 
For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Because greatness is closeness to Jesus, the most unimpressive Christian you can imagine, if he's among you all, as we're saying, if he's, if he's a Christian, if he's part of the kingdom of God, he's great. She's great. Why? Because they're close to the king. And that's what greatness is. It's being close to our Lord. So it's interesting that Jesus, he doesn't say, don't try to be great. He says, don't try to be the greatest. You know, the Bible makes a lot of humility. Those who are proud cannot see God. We'd almost expect Jesus to say, so don't try to be great. Just try to be, but Jesus never tells us to be spiritually mediocre. He just says, don't be the greatest. Like, don't make your spiritual desire to be the most spiritual in the room. That's sinful. But strive for spiritual greatness. We should all want to be spiritual giants because we want to be close to Jesus. That is what honors the Lord. William Carey, who uh, was a British missionary, many call him the father of modern-day missions, went to India in 1792 in a sermon in which he's trying to call people to fathom the commission that Jesus has given us, he says, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. And that's true. It's not about being better than someone else, but oh, we should long to be close to Jesus and for spiritual greatness. Strive for such closeness that we truly expect the Lord of the universe to act like the Lord of the universe, and use broken vessels of clay like us to do his work. True greatness is not a matter of raw power. It's not a matter of comparison. Thirdly, true greatness is also not a zero-sum game. Let's look at verses 49 to 50. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. This is the second mistake the disciples make. And it's funny, it says John answered, um, it's like, is he under conviction? Like, oh, we really messed up this greatness thing. We also did this other thing. I don't know if this was bad too. But they do this rogue exorcist who's like casting out demons. And the disciples either did stop him or were trying to stop him. So John says, were we doing the right thing there? And something to... to just to keep in mind, to understand what's going on here, is there's no sense that this rogue exorcist was a fraud. Like in the book of Acts, there's a story of the sons of Sceva, who's a Jewish priest, and his sons are just frauds. And they're trying to treat Jesus' name like an incantation. So they're going, they're, they don't believe in Jesus, they're not followers of Jesus, but they're trying to like harness his power to cast out demons, and they're exposed. That's not the case here. This is the sense is, this is a genuine follower of Jesus who's trying to engage in kingdom work, He's just, he or she, they're just not part of the official, like, disciple group of Jesus. They're not part of that formal ministry structure. And so they try to stop him. If you think of the, the story where the, the, the disciples are arguing, that's like internal division or internal competition. Sorry, this is like external competition. The other group is competing. How does Jesus respond? Jesus' response is pretty simple. He says, guys... You're on the same team. Look at verse 50. Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Because God is one. If we are serving God, we're on the same team. If there are multiple gods, we could all be serving a God and be on different teams. Because there's one God, 
If I'm serving God and you're serving the true God, then we are on the same team. That's what Jesus says. There's a really interesting parallel passage to this in Numbers 11, verse 26 to 29, where Moses has called the elders to the tent of the tabernacle, and the Spirit descends on the tent. But there are two elders who remained in the camp. That picks up in verse 26. Now, two men, these are two of the elders who were called to go to the tabernacle. They don't. They stay in the camp. They remained in the camp. One was named Eldad. The other was named Medad, and the Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. And so they prophesied in the camp. Even though they didn't go into the tent, the Spirit of God descends on them still. So they begin prophesying where they are in the camp. And a young man ran and tells Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord, Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. That's very similar to what Jesus is saying here. And to reword it, what Jesus is saying is that, look, greatness, closeness to Jesus, the kingdom of God, it's not a zero-sum game. If you have no idea what that means, in economics, a zero-sum game is, is a situation where I gain only by you losing. So, there's a, you know, so if I go up, it means someone's got to go down. Think of it this way. If you remember Black Fridays like 10 years ago, e-commerce has changed Black Friday. It's now a black weekend and everything's online. Like 10 years ago, it was like all the big box retailers would have these massive deals. And so people would like camp out overnight Thursday night to be the first one in to get a limited number of these items. And so you had like dads punching each other over like Furbies. You remember Furbies? Such a big deal. Um, literally dads like punching each other to like get the last Furby for their kid. That's a zero-sum game. If one dad gets a Furby, that means one dad's not going to get a Furby. That's not the way the kingdom of God is. Because God is one. He's one God, yes, but he's infinite. That means an infinite number of people can come close to Jesus and he doesn't run out. I don't come close to Jesus because someone else has to walk away. We all grow in greatness together. That's the beauty of the church. It's not a zero-sum game. We're Baptists, so we believe in the autonomy of the church, and that's important. We believe that we sh- the church should have authority over its decisions, calls us on ministers, does its own discipline. I think that's biblical and right. But we don't want that to become an inward focus. Although we believe the local church is important, we don't want that to turn into, therefore, we are all that matters. Like the kingdom of God stops where these walls end. We want to be kingdom-minded. We're all on one team. There's one kingdom that's advancing, that's advancing in other churches, it's advancing here, it's advancing around the world. That's one of the reasons that we pray for churches every Sunday morning in our area, because we want to be reminded that the kingdom of God extends far beyond Vine Street Baptist Church. We want to be part of what God is doing. We want to be just as excited when revival comes to Bethany Baptist or whatever other church in Louisville. We want to be just as excited as when it comes to us. It's also a reason why we're adding missionaries as official missionaries. You know, someone meeting Jesus in Leipzig, Germany makes no difference in how we function as a church. In the practical life of how I live, it makes no difference. But that is the kingdom advancing. And so we can be just as excited about that as if we have people in our own midst coming to Jesus. It's one team. There's one kingdom. 
in a world that's just overrun with false views of greatness, views that are drunk on power and self-ambition and brute force and strength, Jesus radically redefines greatness for us. He tells us true greatness is not just a matter of raw power, for we worship a crucified Messiah. True greatness is not a matter of comparison, for in fact, true greatness is about being close to Jesus, and it makes no difference where other people stand. Lastly, true greatness is not a zero-sum game. We don't need to exclude others, for God is one and infinite. We are on the same team. There's always room for more on this team. So with that, let's pray. Jesus, you have, um, you have given us a vision of what greatness is, and it's being close to you. Give us hearts and minds that long to be close to you, that don't care for all the things that the world tells us is great, like prestige and the opinion of others and power and strength. Give us faith in its closeness to you that is true greatness. May we be a church that has grown closer to you, that loves what you love, that hates what you hate, longs for you with all our hearts. May you do this in your glorious, majestic name. Amen.